Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number 59 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is a two-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner who hails from the great state of Texas with a pokerific last name that rivals even the legendary moneymaker. It can perhaps be said that this man's destiny was to mix it up at the felt. A military veteran with close to half a million dollars in tournament earnings, he's got a stellar reputation as a stand-up guy both at and away from the tables. On today's show, we get to know him a little better. Nathan Gamble, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Appreciate it, Robbie. That's a hell of an introduction. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you like it. It's always good to start off on the right foot. I have to say it was really fun to write that one up. You know, like with a last name like Gamble, it's just it lends itself to some good, uh, you know, word uh, wizardry. So so we tried. Um, I've recently been really branding myself on uh, Twitter and Instagram and our handles. And my wife's been on me for a while to do it. And uh, I, I came up with Gamble on poker. So uh-huh. Do a little bit more professional but at the uh-huh. same time so that word play in there i like it i like it well i mean let, let, let's start there i mean i imagine you know people people ask you know you just meet a random person so what do you do for a living and you know you say nathan's gamble and i imagine they kind of laugh sometimes when they say you say you're a professional poker player and you're like oh come on really um did you did you genuinely ever at some point in your life consider yourself to be destined for this type of career or industry did that ever happen to you well it happens all the time especially in vegas they're like oh you were meant for this town or uh, it usually takes friends i've known what i'm doing a long uh, a long time and they say wait your last name's gamble i say yes and they're like i just put it together i just connected it and <laughs> yeah, i'm used to it by now but i started playing poker when i was about 12 year old watching my dad and his brothers and our friends play. And somehow I sweet talked my way into the game. And I remember very specifically, uh, I was about 13 years old. I was playing at my uncle Tim's house and let's just say, you know, 13 years. So this is 2002, I think right before the moneymaker boom. And they're reckless. They're wild. They don't know what they're doing alongside half of the country. And my uncle raises, it's no limit holding probably 25 cent, 50 cent. He raises I looked at my pocket queens and I three bet him and it gets back to him. He just rips it all in and everyone else is, you know, bantering back and forth. I take a couple minutes. I eventually fold face up, uh, which let's just say no one else was ever doing. No one's holding a pair, much less queens. But I just knew at 12 or 13 years old that he had it. And he, everyone just kind of goes silent and he shows me Kings and is like, what the hell are you doing kid? Ah. No one folds that. (laughs) And that was kind of the moment that I said, I'm better than these guys. I know something they don't know. And from that point forward, I think is really when it it clicked for me that this is what I do. That's pretty cool. I mean, well, how do you get a bankroll at 12 years old? What stakes were you playing then? Uh, I was just playing with my dad and his friends. As I said, it's, you know, they're playing 25, 50 cent, maybe 50 cent a dollar where it's okay. a $20 buy-in, $40 buy-in. And um, I would literally mow the yard for 20 bucks a week. We have a pretty big yard. And my dad does my allowance. And so the first time he put me into the game for 20 bucks, I lost it. I rebought because I convinced him I'd mow the yard. Right. I lost it. And then I mowed it a couple more times to get the money to play again. Mm-hmm. I never had to mow the yard again. I, from that point forward, just start winning. And what's, 
I mean, I, my dad also had a home game and I'm sure a lot of folks out there, you know, have that imagery, you know, their uncle, their grandpa, you know, their mom sometimes also playing. They don't usually let a 12 year old in. Now it's one thing for your dad to say, okay, come on son. But like every single time, what's everyone else's reaction besides your dad? I question it right now. <laughs> I can't, I, I'm 32. I can't imagine seeing around with my friends and a 12 year old kid. I, at first, I was just watching it. I was sitting behind my dad. You, know, right. you have Uncle Tim there and Uncle Michael over there. And you have Dave pull up the, the six-pack of Foster's beer, yeah. which is a 24-ounce can. So it's just a happy time. I'm watching. I just watch. I think it'd be – I you know, my dad gets up to go to the bathroom, and somehow I'd be like, hey, can I play a hand while you're gone? And I just kind of slowly integrate that way. So they're like, okay, the kid's playing a hand. And then somehow – I convinced them to let me play and I don't know how, I don't know why I would never let 12. I'd be like, no, go play with, you know, outside with your brothers. I, I still question it, to be honest. Interesting. And, and you're saying, you know, you said that that was that, that point where you folded Queens correctly and used the phrase, well, that's just sort of what I do at the time. You know, like I said, just before moneymaker, I don't know that you necessarily are aware that there's this poker industry. A lot of people didn't know about it. You said to yourself already then, hey, I'm going to do this for a living or or, or what, what does that mean? You know, this is what I do. I never made a conscious choice. Uh, I really feel it chose me mm -hmm. um, because I was playing so young. At that point, uh, 12 or 13, Moneymaker Boom happened right around that time. Uh, I was going to underground games with my dad in high school. Okay. Um, I was 15, 16 years old. And, you know, they're not shady games. It's two tables and they're taking a rake. So that's why they're underground. Right. But I remember, I think my junior or senior year, I have finals the next morning. I was naturally gifted in school. I never had to study which is very fortunate because we were out till about six that morning. We're driving back from the game and my dad kind of looks at me and says, Hey, you got finals today. Right. And yeah, you know, I'm wiping the sleep out my eyes. I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. He's like, that's cool. I'm going to go get some sleep. He just knew wow. that I was okay to be able to do what I did. Hmm. until so I was playing underground games I, uh, until five or six in the morning. I was in theater program and uh, this was in full tilt and ultimate bet and poker stars. And all of them were still alive. And I would take a, a flo not floppy disk, a USB drive, uh -huh. and I would install Full Tilt onto a computer. <laughs> and everyone else is studying their lines and doing their practice. I was kind of an alternate or whatever, so I'd plug it in. I'd play for an hour and a half, and theater's over, and I'd uninstall it and go home. And I'd do that day after day. So I, honestly, there's just things that happen that I never chose it. It just it happened to me more so than anything else. Wow. That, that is absolutely fascinating. And we're definitely going to talk a ton about your development as a player, uh, about your poker career, further getting into it. Uh, but I can't help. I mean, you've got quite the interesting pre-poker personal story. I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, you're a veteran, you were a field artillery officer in the U.S. Army. So, you know, first of all, why was it important to you to serve uh, in the first place? And, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your time while you were enlisted. Yeah. So I went to college in I graduated high school 2008. I went to college in 2008 and graduated uh, in three years. Uh, so I graduated in 2011. I kind of just got bored after college. 
uh, okay. in all seriousness. As people um, do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I couldn't find a job. You know, oh. it was that time is still coming out of the 2008 recession. Jobs were tough to find. I have a degree in international business and everyone says, great, you have a, a degree, but you'll have 92 years of experience. So we don't want you. Right. So I, I played poker. Um, I, I I had some money because I took 12th on the very first uh, World Series of Poker bracelet event I ever played, a $1,500 PLO event. So I had $16,000, which for a kid out of college was tons of money. Sure. And uh, I played poker for a while, and then I kind of just bled off all those funds. I didn't know how to be a professional, didn't have bankroll management, any of that. And I was trying to find something to do with my life. Um, my, my grandfather was a paratrooper in World War II. Uh, my best friends have all gone into the military, and I just kind of got bored and said, you know what, let's give this a try. Hmm. Uh, I knew I could be an officer with my college degree, and so I walked into a recruiter station just to find out more information, and I think I shipped out to basic training about two and a half months later. Um, wow. So there's not this grandiose story behind it. It's kind of, I know I can do it. Let me try something new in life. Uh, if worse comes to worse, I'm only there for three and a half years, so what's the worst that could happen? Right. That, that's, that's fair. And I like, I like the honest, you know, there was no uh, romanticizing it and that's cool, but you had uh, quite the interesting service. You, you, you served in some um, unique locations, if, if I could say, why don't you tell us uh, where uh, Nathan Gamble ended up uh, while in uniform? So as I said, uh, as an officer, but I still had to go through basic training. So yeah. first I was at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, where I did basic training and I did officer candidate school, which is essentially the assessment to see if you're uh, cut out of the right cloth to be an officer. Uh, then I went through basic officer leadership college class, class in Oklahoma, which mm -hmm. is where you kind of learn more about the actual equipment. So we were field artillery officers. So we had to learn about our equipment, to learn about uh, what our men would be doing and what we'd be directing them to do. Right. And from that point, I went over to Korea for a year and a half. Right. So I took over a multiple launch rocket system company uh, in Korea. I believe I had three MLRSs under my control with a 16-man platoon. Wow. It's been long enough that the numbers are slightly hazy. Sure. Uh, which, yeah, for a while, it, it's basically the most demanding job without being deployed hmm. because Korea is considered frontline operations. Right. Because we're still technically uh, at war with North Korea. That's right. So it, it's very demanding. It's five days a week of, you know, maybe you wake up at four for PT, maybe it's three. We had what's called EDRs, which is emergency drill readiness. Uh -huh. uh, and it happened about once every month or two. And you just get called at one in the morning and everyone loads out. You get all the equipment ready. You're, you're, putting your men through their paces and you're just going all day long. So it's a 20, 24 hour day easily. Yeah. Uh, you have training exercises, but most of it's just training and making sure you're ready for whatever's going to come down the pipeline. And towards the end of my tour there, then there was an incident yeah. where, uh, let me remember the details correctly. So South Korean soldiers were walking along the DMZ uh, just patrolling like they normally do. And uh, North Korea had planted a couple landmines across the border. It blew up a couple of the soldiers. They lost limbs. I don't think any of them died. I think they lost a couple legs between them. 
which South Korea didn't take too kindly. Uh, so they posted up as retaliation some giant speakers facing to North Korea and it's blasted out propaganda saying, hey, this is what your country has done. This is right. who they are. We're not actually evil as much as they tell you. And North Korea fired a three rockets at these speakers. Wow. Uh, and South Korea's policy at the time was for every rocket that North Korea fired, they fired, I want to say it was 24 back. Yep. So they did a return volley of 72 rockets into North Korea, <laughs> which North Korea then said, okay, we're going to burn you down into the pit of hell and there's going to be lava of blood. And, you know, the normal rhetoric. Sure, sure. Um, which meant for us that we were now at mission ready, standby. Uh, I, my wife at the time, she was in uh, Korea. That's where I met her. Uh -huh. And she says, hey, um, how's it going up there? So oh, it's good. I'm walking <laughs> home. She says, you may want to call your commander because she was part of a military intelligence unit. Oh, so she knew as well. Um, wow. Okay. Right. And wow. so she just gave me a like, hey, just, you know, give someone a call. So I, I gave them a call and uh, they said, yeah, come back in. And that's when we found everything out. So for the next, I want to say 72 hours, we mm -hmm. were just on standby. We went and withdrew our weapons from the armory and we were in our uh, rocket launchers and mm -hmm. just basically waiting to see what would happen for the next week straight. You're a long way from home, you know, many, many thousands of miles. And, you know, you said you kind of happenstanced into the army. And here you are in this uh, kind of crazy situation. Not many people can tell stories like that. Was there any point in time where you said, what the heck did I do? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I, because everyone over there, all the, the soldiers over there are, you enlist, you, you serve with this notion of, okay, I know what I'm getting myself into. Um, but a lot of people will do it for schooling, for, for college credit, right. for a way out of their current situation. And the amount of people that join the military thinking they'll never see combat and that's not for me, that's not what my specialty is built around, I'm safe. It's amazing how many people there are and how fast that changes once once we're actually a wartime situation. Right, right. Um, so I had that, that conversation with several of my men of just like, hey, this is where we are. Right. It's not like you can run away. There, there's no place to go. You just have to accept the situation you're in. Sure. Well, I mean, for, for lack of a better expression that, that would elude me at this time, you know, it said that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I'm curious, an incident like that and perhaps even the, you know, three and a half full years, you know, sir, you know, your tour of duty and, and service. What what takeaways do you have that, you know, still carry you through perhaps more challenging situations, you know, at the poker table or, or in general in life? Right. So I, I went through that one personally. Uh, my wife went to Afghanistan, several mm -hmm. of my best friends, their wives and girlfriends. Ironically, not many of the guys went, but a lot of the girls went over to Afghanistan. And uh, I've seen enough in Korea. I've heard enough stories from my friends and, uh, and wife of what happened over there. And then nowadays I'm a poker player. Right. It's about as crazy different as you can get. Uh, I have the ability to hop on a plane, 
I get too drunk one night and I say, oh, I need to get a massage tomorrow to be able to recover and relax. It's night and day difference. Uh, And so for me, I've had this conversation with several people. We show up at a poker table. We're in a multi-billion dollar casino. It's built around food and beautiful women and drinks. And you want a massage at the table? Why not? You're playing with thousands of dollars that you should be able to lose. And I see people that get upset all the time. And it just gives you a perspective, not only at the tables, but in life in general, that there's more to it. There's harsher conditions out there. There's far worse things that can and do happen to people on a, a daily basis. And so it's very difficult for me to not have a positive attitude, uh, especially in the poker world, because none of it really matters at, at day's end. There's there's far worse things out there for far more people. And I, I just don't take anything personally anymore. Okay. That, that, uh, that's a, if, if there's any part of this, dare I say, with a lot more to go, if there's any part of this episode that anyone wants to replay, uh, I would say that it's probably that part. It's a fantastically important uh, message you shared there, Nathan. Thank you very much for that. Um, on a perhaps brighter note, are there any memories that you cherish uh, from your service or some really happy times or highlights uh, that you'd like to share? So the the main thing for a lot of us that have gotten out, people that, oh, you're going to miss it and it's going to be the best thing you ever had and you're going to want back in. I don't think so. Okay. I enjoyed my time inside. I'm glad I did it. And the most important thing is just the friends I've met and the camaraderie that you share because you go through some very difficult times and very trying times, but you go through them together. And it's that kind of bonding through fire that you hear about in the movies uh-huh. where it's very true. It's a, a very real experience where you're on two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep, no sleep at all. And you're just crawling through the mud or you're just putting up with situations that you don't know how you're going to get through and you do it with the person beside you. Right. And there's one moment particularly as that basic training, which looking back on basic training is a joke just because of everything else you go through after. Right. <laughs> and that's what the drill sergeants tell you at the time. They're like, you think this is difficult. This is the easiest thing you'll do, which because it's, it's constructed, it's measured, it's set forth. You don't have to think you just have to do. Right. Um, but at the time it's extremely difficult and demanding and mentally taxing, but I was probably in week six or seven of nine, 11 weeks, right? something like that. And I remember there's three of us and we were supposed to go get the water and we walk over to this water tank and we're about to start pouring water into the canteens. And there's just a butterfly, a butterfly on top of it. And literally the three of us just kind of stopped and stared for a minute and just appreciated the beauty of the moment for a chance to look at something that was outside of our world. And we all just took a moment until it flew off and, and we all shared that moment together. And so you do really learn to stop and appreciate the little things and appreciate the beauty that surrounds you. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you got to repeat that part too. That's <laughs> a man after my own heart. I love it. Fantastic answer. Uh, let's pivot back to the felt a little bit. Did you ever play poker with uh, any of your fellow officers or uh, basic trainees? No, never once. Really? So that's a surprise. I went into into the military, having played 
semi-professionally for eight to 10 years, whatever it ended up being. Uh, I had that 12th place on World Series of Poker. I had a deep run on full tilt event in, I want to say, eighth or ninth place for mm-hmm. 17000 I'd earned my chops. Um, and people just hear, oh, you're a poker player. I don't want to play against you. It doesn't matter what mm. game they're playing. It doesn't matter what if you're any good or not. There's just a perception. So there's never really any conversations of that happening. Okay, interesting. If you never pursued poker... Is there anything else that kind of like piqued your interest? Like what would you be doing now if not uh, playing professionally? When I left high school, I went into school for international business, but my, my hobby or not hobby, but what my passion was, what I wanted to pursue was to fly helicopters. Uh, that something about just spoke to me. I've always been the guy that I've gone bull riding. I've gone skydiving. I've done bungee jumping, uh, scuba diving, anything that there can be. I've always wanted to fly helicopters. And when I got out of the military, I actually pursued that. I was stationed in Oklahoma. My wife was stationed in Hawaii. And I moved up to Utah to pursue flying helicopters. I used the GI Bill and I flew for a year. I went through training. Uh, I got to the point where I was able to fly without anyone else in the cockpit. It was just me and I'm able to fly patterns and do what I need to and fly to the next airport. I never got any of my licensing because ah. I realized, well, there's a reason. I okay. realized something. My wife and I had dated long distance. Uh, we were actually married at that point and still long distance. So for three years, we've been long distance. The closest we'd live was three hours apart. Uh, and at that point, you know, she's in Hawaii. I'm in Utah. It's a six-hour flight after sure. driving to Vegas. And I said, on a scale of one to ten, how much do I enjoy this? And the secret to that is you remove seven because everyone says seven. I don't know seven. Well, if you remove seven, you're left with a decision. Right. You want to do something for the rest of your life that's a six. A six is even a passing grade in any test. It's quite miserable. It's 60% enjoyment. And eight is, I enjoy it quite a lot. I do this again 80% of the time. This is is a lot of fun. I said, I enjoy this a six. And for me to be married, for me to understand the commitment of what this would take to pursue helicopters. Uh, I'd have another two years of flying. We'd be long distance for another minimum of two years. It wasn't worth it to me. So yeah. is at that point I said, you know what, I'm done flying from the perspective of trying to get my licenses. I told my instructor that, and he said, okay, let's fly for fun. Right. So we just burned off a lot of hours and, and flew for fun and enjoyment but uh, I don't know outside of that. If I was single, if I was just by myself, I'd probably get back into that world. But mm-hmm. as is, uh, right now I want to do commentary. <laughs> that's <laughs> like what I love. That's, that's what I love. I right like now. it. It's a very deep answer. And I imagine um, that that kind of touches upon how deeply you think about poker as well in certain situations. It's not just, uh, you know, black or white, the numbers say one thing, but there's a more highly evolved thought process involved when it comes to decision-making, reviewing your play, or at least that's what I'm, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, I'm not forcing my opinion. I'm uh, projecting. Uh, (laughs) That's what it seems like. Uh, Am am I right about that? Well, so yes and no. Okay. So at the table, if I'm just playing by myself, 
I don't think. Okay. It's very rare that I have any thought coming from my head. I'm just following my intuition. Hmm. I don't do any of the GTO. I don't do any charts. I don't do any studying. Gamble, uh, gamble. The game's okay. All <laughs> it's, all, it's all mixed game. Right, right. And mixed games, there's no books on it. There's no videos on it. It's all intuitive solving. It's all pattern recognition. It's all just trusting your instincts and your guts and figuring out what works over time. So I don't think. I just allow myself to to play. Now, when I do commentary, when I uh, am winning a bracelet or winning a ring on my Twitch channel, then I am forced to talk through things for people. Mm-hmm. They say, well, why did you raise under the gun with this hand when earlier you said that was a terrible hand, don't play it? And I say, okay, well, it's because of the connectedness of this. It's because of the stack size here. It's because of the dynamics at play. Da, 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 da. And so when I talk things out loud, I have a very in-depth thought process, and that makes me a better player. So I actually play far better when I'm playing online and I'm having to talk through my thought process for people because it makes me realize why I make the plays I play. That's interesting. Again, a full and, and complete answer there. Thank you. Okay. Well, that'll. It's funny. It seems like you may have uh, read ahead at what some certain questions I'll ask, but I'll find a way to ask them uh, in a way that sounds new. Um, it, you know, I, I met you when you're playing live poker and you're talking very highly about uh, enjoying online poker and streaming online poker. Um, do you have a more particular affinity for one over the other? I, I love live poker far more, far, okay. far more. Okay. Why is that? So it's what I grew up on. When mm. I was 12 years old, I wasn't sitting around the computer watching my dad and his friends playing online poker. I, you're, you're watching the joy. Uh, whether whether people are winning or losing, there's a certain level of enjoyment and camaraderie that happens live at the table. You're, you're able to look over and you know give someone a hard time when they lose a pot and know how they're going to take it. You're able to bond over it. And I think live poker is just, it's more natural. Okay. I like it. Well, you mentioned a couple of times that first trip you took to the WSOP. You're 21 years old. You have a 12th place finish. You get some good money there. uh, And you went with your dad. Uh, And that's something that, uh, believe it or not, you and I actually share. I didn't go to play, but I went just to be there at the WSOP uh, with my dad for the first time was about five years ago. And I know it was very special for me beyond your results at the felt. Can you tell us what it felt like uh, to be at the WSOP and, and participating for the first time with your dad right there with you from who you learned poker? As you said, I learned poker from, obviously I've learned much more than that from him. Um, I learned poker from my dad and it's, He's been there since I was 12. He's taking the underground games uh, at, at 15. And he, he's always kind of hides his head on that one, says, I can't believe I did that, but <laughs> the credit's there. Uh, and then, you know, as you said, I went to the World Series with them. I remember that particular year, he bankrolled me on at least that tournament and maybe a couple others. And before we left the house, Robbie, we were sitting around the, the kitchen table and we're just chatting about, oh, the World Series, and we've watched it for years. It's going to be so much fun. And he looks at me and says, well, how about if one of us makes the final table, the other one has to jump off the stratosphere <laughs> because they have that bungee jumping ride that's just all – which I'm just like, sure. 
as I said, I, I'm free rolling. I love that. Oh, wow. I'm, <laughs> right, because you said you like jumping off high things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we don't talk any more about it. And then this first tournament happens. I'm getting closer to get through the money. I, I'm at the same table as David uh, Devilfish Oliot. I, oh, wow. Ari Engel was at my very first table. He doesn't remember, but he is at my table. And Devilfish, I'm making it further and further and further. And my dad's there on the rail. And he stops by and he's like, oh, you're doing good. Then we're getting less tables and less tables. He's like, you can just see him slightly getting more and more nervous the deeper we get. (laughs) He has to jump off the stress. (laughs) And he didn't know. And he tells me now, he's like, I don't know if I want you to make that final table or not. But wow. He he literally had conflicted emotions. But (laughs) uh, yeah, he's like, I would have found a way to buy you out. I'm like, I don't know if I would have let you. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. Um, but even to this day, when I won my first bracelet in 2017, I gave it to my dad oh, um, because he's the one that, you know, saw in me the ability to do this. He's the one that encouraged me to be able to play poker. My mom was not happy about it. She was not enthusiastic. She was there's probably an argument or two along the way of whether I should be able to play poker at such a young age. But he's the one that essentially allowed it and encouraged it and saw within me the ability to compete. Uh, and so I gave him the first bracelet because of that. And because as much as he loves poker, I, I think he has absolutely no chance of ever winning a bracelet himself. <laughs> and so I want him to get a taste of what it's like. I like it. And right, even to this day, I, I go back to Vegas on Wednesday. This is uh so the day this is released, I'll be back in Vegas. And he flies in the day before. So oh, I'll be nice. back in Vegas. We're going to have dinner as soon as I land. And then he's going to play the seniors event. And hopefully one of these days, I'll have the the chance to to rail him on one of his final tables. But that's, it's still something we share and something we bond in throughout every year. That's, that's absolutely beautiful. And plus, you know, of course, it gives him, you know, when he's wearing that bracelet. Oh, did you win that? No, it gives him a chance to, to brag about his awesome son. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, beyond that first story, beyond your bracelet victories, you've attended the World Series of Poker numerous times. Do you have any uh, special memories uh, or funny stories from your times uh, at the WSOP that uh, you care to uh, share with, uh, with our listeners and people watching? I think what stands out the most is the friendships I've made along the way. Really, mm. truly. Um, so there's one gentleman who I played with with one on the very first event uh, of 2012, I want to say. So it wasn't my first year there, but it was one of my first uh, events of that year. And it's Kaylin McNeil. And we played the very first table together and we were friendly and we we're having a good time. And he's one of the loveliest men you'll ever meet in poker, Canadian and he went on to win that event. I said, holy shit, like that guy's good. And then next year he final tabled it. And I think he took third on it. And I'm still friends with him to this day. Every time we see each other, you know, I give him a hug. He gives me a hug. I'm going to visit him sometime in Canada. And we just spend the time talking. And the the time slips away. Oh, we need to get back from break. We're, we're, we need to get back there. Um, and, and there's other people like that. Um, I befriended Brandon Jack Harris, who just had fifth place finish just our day in the $10,000 horse event. And he's the same way. Every time I see him, it's, it's happy. It smiles. Uh, We're, we're friends. And to share in that, you know, camaraderie when I won my second brace online, 
he was on the phone with me during breaks and talking through how to kind of tweak my strategy a little bit and, and how to win. Uh, and I really attribute that second bracelet to him. Nice. Uh, Yuri Dizanowski, I don't know exactly how to say his last name. Givalevsky or something like that, right? Givalevsky, we'll go with it. I need to ask him at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but I met him not because he's amazing at poker. I had no idea. He was just a very happy, very friendly guy. We we battled, we challenged each other across the felt, and we became friends. And then I saw that he's winning everything under his son. He's uh-huh. ranked number one on pocket fives. He has two bracelets, a deeper on the main event, won every W Coop ever known. And that's not how I know him. I right. just know him as Yuri, the happy guy. Nice. And so that's what I look forward to at the series. Those are the memories I look forward to is where I get to see my friends at the table. Uh, I, I get to see my competitors across the felt. And it's a special time of the year for that. Um, that that's that's what really makes the WSOP so special to me. That's super cool. I mean, it's funny, you know, one of the questions that we always ask our listeners here, you know, this is the friendliest poker podcast in town. So we always ask, who are the friendliest people or the friendliest person who you've ever competed against at the tables? And I think you've answered that question uh, quite well. You've, you've competed with those guys, perhaps, uh, or across the table from them, too? Absolutely. Yeah. I've competed with them across the table from them many, many times now. And I'll, I guess for one specific memory that people always want, you ask for a specific memory. And it's from winning my first bracelet. Okay. Because everyone says, how's it feel? Right. They want to know. They want to be there. They want to be in that place. And I don't know if this is how anyone else should react, but this is this is mine. I wasn't uh, – there's no one on my reel. There's one guy from home I played with throughout those home games for 10 years. You're not known. No one knows who you are. You have one friend out there who says, oh, I was walking by and I saw you. And we went on dinner break. There's five people left and we come back from dinner break. It took one hour and one hand for it to be over. It's just steamroll. I, I mean, you can check the replays and they say, you know, the steamroll is, is going. It, it oh. was absurd. It was one level and the very first hand of the new level. So it caught me by surprise. It was shock. It was disbelief. I sat there after winning it and it didn't feel real. And there's no one around. No one's there to celebrate. It's not this great, glorious affair. It's just, let's do a quick interview. All right, thanks, guys. We'll see you all later. Uh, go off into the wind. You don't wow. even get the bracelet. You get the next day at the ceremony. Mm. And I think it was about 1030 at night. And I went and I walked into a cash game section at the Rio. And I walked up to a floor person I've seen every single day. I didn't say a single word to him about how I just want a bracelet. I just said, hey, put me on the 2040 Omaha list. Amazing. I said, okay. <laughs> And I went and I played 24 Omaha eight or better for about three hours. I didn't say a word to anyone. I wasn't saying they're trying to brag. It was just decompressing and right. trying to understand if it was real <laughs> because it happened so quickly. And I, I, I took about three hours for the adrenaline to kind of settle down. Wow. And I went to bed that night and I came back the next day. I saw the same floor guy. He said, I was Chuck. I haven't seen him this year. I've been looking for him, but it's Chuck. And he said, you didn't tell me yesterday you want a bracelet. What the hell are you doing? And I said, Chuck, I just need to decompress. I love it. He said, that's fair. That's That's, amazing. That's that's that moment when you win the bracelet. It's like you've been working for it for so long. Right. That 
I, it was just absolute disbelief that you wake up the next morning and your phone has 150 messages. Yep. And you say, I guess it was real. I, I guess it. this was real. That, that is an that's amazing, a moment. That's an amazing story. And I was kind of wondering also like, you know, if anyone at that cash table is following the live updates and all of a sudden, like, wait a minute. <laughs> wow. That's really cool. One. Marcel Lusk. I played with him deep on day three. Uh-huh. And I don't know if he'd remember me to this day, but he came over after I sat there for about two and a half hours. And he says, oh, Nathan, how are you doing, my friend? And I said, oh, hey, how are you doing, Marcel? He said, good, good. How did you do in that tournament we played? I said, I won it. He says, wait, what? <laughs> I won it. He's like, oh. And like, and a couple of people like kind of realized at that point. Right. It's because of Marcel, like that, that brought it up. And he was just like, oh my God, I'm so happy for you. Amazing. That's not, that's not the answer you usually expect, but <laughs> hey, I want it, especially in the World Series. Shout out yeah. to the, the Flying Dutchman, Marcel Luce. Very, very cool. Did he give you the, uh, the uh, upside down glasses as, as tribute? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope he sang me a song, but there you I don't go. remember. There you go. Well, so how does that feel? Uh, you know, you said you love live poker infinitely more than online, but hey, you're a double bracelet winner. You've won a second one last year in the, uh, I believe it's $600 PLO 8. Um, you know, the, you love that game. How does that feel in contrast? Obviously, it's, you know, different times, pandemic times. Um, so, you know, is there also that aha moment? You know, you're sitting at home, you have a rail. Like, how, how does that work? So we've talked about, I have a very different path into poker than most people. Mm -hmm. Very different. Even though I've played for 20 years, I've only played professionally and semi-professionally since 2016. Right. So I didn't have a rail the first time. I didn't have a following the first time. I didn't have anything other than it's me proving myself in the poker world. Mm -hmm. That next time I built up a group of friends. Uh, we have our 8160 mix game that we played. And in that is at the time, Brandon Jack Harris was playing with us. Ali Najad is the one that's hosting and has co-hosted alongside him. Alongside, I mean, many other names. Max Pescatori was in there. But just people that aren't new in the poker world are friends. Uh, Andrew Yeh, he just took third on the 10K Omaha 8 or better. Yeah. Uh, several, several great, amazing poker players and friends. And for that second bracelet, uh, I, I really felt it was more about not proving myself to the poker world, but becoming a part of it. Mm. And forming that rail and having formed those friendships. And I had several people that were awake with me at one in the morning, two in the morning. I think I wanted two twelve, if I remember correctly. And I said, I was, I was on the phone with Brandon Jack Harris, who I was like, Oh my God, he's the best player in the world. He almost won player of the year. This guy's amazing. And now I'm calling him. And now we're talking strategy on the breaks. And I had other people when I won that are texting me and calling me at two in the morning. They were just <laughs> up and awake right? and they were there for me. And as soon as I won, it was that same feeling of accomplishment is that same adrenaline rush. My wife was asleep in the other room. I didn't wake her up. I was like, I'll wake her up in the morning with the good right. news. <laughs> but the first victory was me establishing, my, establishing myself in the poker world and saying, hey, I'm, I'm I'm part of it. And the second one was really that surrounding myself with the right people and proving myself that I belonged within this 
poker community more so. And it meant a lot. That's really cool. It, it, it definitely meant a lot. So, so let's talk for a second. You know, you, you touched upon this uh, eighty-one sixty game. Uh, you know, you mentioned you know Alina Jad. You mentioned Max Pescatori, Brandon Shaq Harris. I'm just a recreational, you know, one, two, two, five player, but I know that game selection is pretty important, and um, that sounds like kind of a tough game to beat, Nathan. So, what are you doing in that game? What's that game like? So we started off the game uh, originally at Bellagio. Uh, we had a little bit of a disagreement with them. We moved it over to the Encore poker room. Uh, let me just say Encore win is one of the best poker rooms in Vegas for those that somehow haven't checked it out. It's extremely well run and amazingly um, just put together. One of the best top five in the world. And we moved the game over there. And you have these players. You have these names. But it's still just poker. At day's end, it's poker. And you can sit across from Negranu or Helmuth or Brandon or Ali, and it's still just your decisions against their decisions. And what I love about the mixed game community in particular is people say, well, what's your favorite game? And I say, mix. They say, well, what's the favorite game in the mix? And I say, no, it's mix. Because we play a 13-game mix. And people don't even know what half the games are. <laughs> but you don't have to be a superstar. I'm still struggling some of those games. I don't want to say out loud what they are, but I know what they are, where I'm not playing the best at the table by any stretch of imagination. But it's kind of the Chip Reese theorem. I don't need to be an A-plus player across the board. Let me be a B player. Let me just be a solid player in every single game and not make too many mistakes. And don't have that one game or the two games where I just bomb everything, I give it all away. And so it's not so much about who you're playing with and how spectacular they are at poker. It's about how you're just consistent. If you're consistent across the board, you're going to win day after day. I like and, that. Yeah, it's insightful. Yeah. And, and as I said, some of the players on our game are amazing players. Um, Kevin Gearhart just won the 10K horse. Andrew Ye took third on the 10K Omaha eight or better. John Bunch has a fourth place in the Limit Hold'em and eighth place on the PLO. I have a seventh on the Dealer's Choice. Uh, we Hernan took second on the Omaha 8 Triple uh, event. Scott Abrams took third on that event. We have a you know, community of that 8160 group has probably, I think I just said eight final tables. Yeah, uh, pretty solid. summer alone. Yeah. And everyone's amazing. Everyone's very good. But in the mixed game, they may have a hole in several of their games. And that's where you take advantage. Is they're great and they're better than you in some games, but just be able to take advantage of them in the games that they're not. Right. That's how you win day after day. That's how you win consistently within the mixed world. Right. So, okay. So I have to try to frame this question in a way that you feel comfortable answering it because we don't want to give away secrets or anything like that. You have won both of your bracelets in PLO8, and you say your favorite game is The Mix. It's known in Dealer's Choice that ideally you should be picking games that your opponents aren't good at as opposed to ones you are good at. So I'll frame the question like this. When someone chooses a game in Dealer's Choice, what game makes you kind of 
turn your lips up a bit and smile. What well, Gary makes me the happiest. I, I have to go with Big O. Okay. Any of the split pot games. It's primarily it's split pot games. So if I took you, Robbie, and said, let me turn you into a winning player at mid stakes, high stakes. And mid-stakes. even more winning player. Right. Even okay. more okay. winning. <laughs> okay. Winningest of winning. Yes. <laughs> I would start you off and teach you and make sure you understand in depth Omaha 8 or better. Uh-huh. Limit Omaha 8. And the reason is it's just teaching people how to perceive split pot games and dividing pots into different segments for the high and the low. Uh And then maybe realizing when the low isn't just yours exclusively. And it's figuring out how to do those things that transcends most of the mixed games is figuring that portion out. And uh, for me, Big O speaks to me, Pot Limit Omaha eight or better speaks to me because it has those characteristics and I don't know how I ever teach anyone those games because I have an innate understanding mm. of them when people play their hands to me it's very face up mm-hmm. I, I'm fortunate I don't know how but they just play their hands and they give them away to me I say okay this is what they have how do I extract for them how do I get away from my hand and I, I play Big O right now in Texas. I think I have an 88% win rate on the cash games. Is that all? <laughs> that's it. Uh, it feels low. Yikes. But it's just something about speaks to me. And uh-huh. I don't know how. I don't know if I could ever teach anyone those games in the same way I understand them. But if someone calls Big O, I'm like, oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Very good. Well, um, you know, again, it's crazy. Like, I just feel like we're very in sync uh, the way we think about things, uh, you know, very much peas in a pod in a way. Uh, listeners may not realize, uh, and, and people watching, that I met you for the first time just a couple weeks ago. Uh, you came to my Mixed Game Festival, and it was pretty awesome, I got to say, to see a pro player who regularly plays in the 8160 mix, who enters five-figure buy-in events regularly, Come, come to dabble with us, you know, with us uh, mere recreationals in a 4-8 dealer's choice. And when I ask you, hey, so, you know, what are you doing here? You're literally, you know, you got a final table waiting for you. Uh, and you're like, I came to support the growing of mixed games. Why is that important to you? Professionals need recreationals as much as recreationals need the professional dream. Mm. We're peas in a pod, Robbie. We're one in the same because the mixed game community is great. It's glorious. It, it, it People see it and they want to be a part of it. They see players like uh, Ali or Elia Lezra or Crazy Mike. And they say, wow, they're playing 300, 600. Oh, my goodness, I want to join them. But they feel intimidated by it. And what I've realized, I've had many conversations with Ali on this uh, for several years now, trying to figure out how is what we lack in the mixed game community on the whole in Vegas is what I call the bridge. Mm-hmm. There's an occasional 4-8 game that's hosted at Aria. I'm saying $4, $8. That's where I learned. I started playing April of 2019. Wait, 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 wait. 4-8. No. Yes. yes. Wow. I, I'm relatively new to this community, but Holy I learned very quickly. Okay. That's actually very encouraging to hear, I have to say. 
It should be. It's yeah. it's not that difficult if you have a poker mind to grasp these games. It really isn't. And that's what I try to tell people. If you can figure stuff out, if you can be intuitive, if you can think through, you can learn very quickly in this world and you can move up at a rate that's exponential to hold them. Hmm. But that game's not a regular game anymore. Right. right so talk and, about this bridge. Right. So there's a 4.8. And then for a while, there's a 30.60 slash 40.80. And there's 81.60. And you're like, okay, that's a little bit of a gap between 4.8 and 30.60. Yeah. So I was trying to build a bridge of a, say, 10.20 or 15.30 game. And for a while, we had a 20.40 game that they had put together at Aria. So... 4 8 to 2040, it's more manageable, but still a little bit of a leap. But on the whole, the issue is there's not many 4 8 games. There's not many 10 20 games. There's not many 30 60 games. So it, it usually goes 4 8 or 6 12 at Aria. And then your next game is going to be 81 60 over at Resorts World. Right. And there's no bridge anymore. Uh, Michael Trevitt has started putting together, uh, I want to say it's a 1530 and a 2040 game at the win. So he's starting to put that together. It has some longevity to it at this point. But now we need the bridge again where we need a consistent 4-8 game. It's just trying to get people to be able to learn the game at reasonable stakes. If they enjoy the games, they want to be able to move up. And they can't move up from 4-8 to 81-60. So it's being able to give back to the community to learn the same way I did. That's why I want to be there at your mixed game festival for four, eight mixed games. Uh-huh. Let's get people to learn. Let's get people invested. Let's get more of those four, eight games happy around town. It doesn't have to be a nice property. It doesn't have to be a fancy property or a bad property, any property, Westgate, Orleans, Resorts World. I don't care where it's hosted. Have some consistent games, some four, eight games. And then we need consistent 1530 and 2040 games. We need to consistently be able to grow the game because without that bridge without that divide or with that divide, we are going to die. The mixed game community will die at the top. Where are players going to come from? Where, where are you going to get players for an 8160 game? Well, it's a nuclear cockroach. It won't die. I don't know why it won't, but it should have died a long time ago for the lack of new players and new blood we have coming into it. Hmm. So to me, it's everything to, to grow at the beginning stages give back to community to make sure people understand it, to make sure people truly enjoy the games. And you're not just coming in and say, I usually play much bigger and these guys suck, but I just want, no, like make sure people enjoy it. Make sure people learn, sit there, be willing to give your time because your time wall could be spent getting more money elsewhere. Can't be spent on a more valuable approach for the longevity of the game. Good to good to have that uh, long term approach. I agree with it. Um, just you know, uh, I know you you guys uh, you need us recreationals, but just as let's say a goalpost or a guidepost, you know, understanding the games, having a knack for it, and you know, getting the familiarity is one thing. But quite frankly, having the bankroll for it is another. You're no longer at that beginning stage where you don't know bankroll management. Some of us, you know, we grasp the games. We've got home game experience as well. At what point, you know, do we say, okay, I can feel comfortable going to the 3060, to the 2040? Um, you know, what sort of generic, maybe if you could ballpark it, <clears throat> excuse me, type of bankroll should we be having 
to take a couple of shots. Uh, again, not assuming, you know, and it's a, maybe perhaps a wild assumption here, but we're, that we're in some sort of a similar realm of skill set. But what was lacking is the money aspect. Once we grasp the games, at what point, you know, bankroll wise, can we feel comfortable jumping up a little bit? So we're going to assume a similar skill set because that's the hardest thing to grasp. Right. And let me segue off of this one for a moment to come back. Uh, Rimco posted up how he hates split pot draw games the other day, specifically referencing Bidusi and Bidesi. So the beauty of those games is it allows you to split the pot more often. It allows, allows recreationals more longevity in the game and allows them more playtime. That's that's the base level of it. So the interesting thing, though, is for your bankroll, it depends on the composition of the mix. Hmm. That's the most important thing. So for the 8160 in particular, we have 13 games. Of those, I want to say nine to ten of them are split pot games. Hmm. So it's a relatively, as we like to call it, bloodless mix because it's not someone just crushing everyone else. It's okay. You have an occasional scoop pot, but most of your winnings is coming from learning how to three quarter people learning how to save a bet or skip a bet when you're getting three quartered. So it's relatively bloodless. Now, if we look at the next tier up the 300, 600 game, I believe they have a 10 game mix with two of them being split pot. Eight of them being one winner games. Right. So it's a very bloody mix. And they also have straddles and blind pots for some of the big bet games and, and stuff like this. So it plays more like 500 to 1,000. Yeah. So it's a very bloodlust mix. Yeah. So it depends primarily on skill set, but also the composition of the mix. Is it hmm. split pot? Is it primarily limit? Or is it going to be a big bet mix where it has some pot limit and some no limit and some big O and it's a cap on this? So that's the primary thing I would look at for a player. Obviously, if you're in a um, very bloody mix, you're going to need a lot bigger bankroll. Hmm. Much, much, much bigger. That's a, a great tangent. And uh, at least for me, a very instructional answer. And uh, I, I hope uh, a lot of folks out there can gain uh, some insight from that one too. Good, good, uh, good answer there. Thank you. Um, I want to get through a couple other questions before we get to our community questions here. Um, you write for Card Player Magazine. Um, so how did you first get that gig? And what appeals to you about doing poker writing beyond just playing the game for a living like so many of your contemporaries? I was interviewed after I won my second bracelet by card player. I forget the gentleman's name at the minute. And I mentioned I was writing a book. Uh, as I said, my grandfather's paratrooper in World War II. I have his memoirs and I was writing and still I am writing a book on his exploits. Hmm. And they found out after, during that interview that I was writing and they said, we loved how you talked in the interview. We noticed you were writing a book. Would you be interested in writing for a card player? Very cool. And I went to my wife and I said, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Because there's a bucket list item. Ah. Before I responded to him that day, I had already written an article and sent it with my response. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, um, that's really cool. I, I love it. I, 
I've been playing poker since I was 12. This is my passion. It's given me almost everything I have in this life. So to be able to write for an article that I had hanging on my wall as a, as a kid, as a 15-year-old kid, to be able to write for them it is next level amazing. Uh, I, I've been doing commentary recently. Uh, for I did it for PokerGo and CBS for a $10,000 limit hold'em final table. That was a bucket list item that I didn't even know that I truly had until I started doing the commentary. I did it for the right. Galifon Challenge. It, it's amazing. Oh. So honestly, right now, I want to get more into the media side. I want to do more interviews, more podcasts, more commentary, more written content than playing necessarily. Because oh. it's given me so much, I think that's my opportunity to give back. I want to be an ambassador for a poker site, not for myself so much, but so that I can contribute to the poker world. So when there's those questions about tournaments or is this good for the game or is this good for the game or how do we attract more recreationals, I have a voice. I want to do the media side. I want to do the commentary. I want to do the writing to attract people, to give back to this world. That's given me just about everything I have. Amazing. Amazing answer. And I think I got to give the shout out. I believe that's Julio Rodriguez for the Poker Stories uh, podcast over at Card Player Magazine. Um, great answer. I love it. Um, you use the nickname Surf Bum for Life on Twitter. And I don't believe either Texas or Las Vegas is really known as a surfer's paradise. So how'd you come up with that one? So actually, right before this interview, I just changed that to gamble on poker. Oh, okay. Because of all these media media inquiries I'm getting, I'm trying to present myself more as a professional, excuse me, professional side and change that image just a touch from I'm just having fun out here to trying to present a little bit more professionally. But that's been my handle for probably 10 plus years. Yep. And as you said, has nothing to do with Texas, has nothing to do <laughs> uh, with Vegas, but it has to do with my mentality. Uh-huh. And I've known for a long time that poker is what I do. It's who I am. And it's kind of the way of life, the way of thinking that I want to always remind myself that if I end up in a nine to five job where I was hating my life, you know, with the oh. white picket fence and the, the wife and the three kids and just that mundane, that's not who I am. I, I, it's not me. And it was a way of reminding myself that if I find myself in that nine to five job, I want to just kind of sell everything, pack it up and move to Hawaii. Uh, I want to rediscover myself. I needed that freedom and independence. And that's uh, just kind of been my way of always reminding myself to to be true to who I am. Okay. And then now if people want to know that person who's true to himself, it's uh, at Gamble on Poker on Twitter? Yes, sir. On Twitter, on Instagram, on Twitch. Brilliant. Okay. All three of them. So we know you've been to Korea, but uh, according to the Hendon mob, all of your flags are the stars and stripes. So how about traveling abroad for some poker? Has that ever appealed to you? I went over to Melbourne for the Aussie Millions back in, I want to say it was 2019. I I loved it. Absolutely amazing. It is some of the best food you've ever had. That's what everyone raves about. And before I went over there, I was like, what do you mean food? Like, okay, the breakfast is amazing. What's that mean? But they have like a espresso milkshake and they like hand pick their little <laughs> eggs off of a tree and they have a bacon tree in the backyard. I'm telling you, it's hand picked bacon. I don't, it's some of the best food I've ever had in my life. Um, their food was amazing. The entire experience, the staff was friendly. It was well ran. I, I absolutely loved it. 
Uh, I'm now talking about going to World Series of Poker Europe after this World Series. Nice. Specifically because no player to date has won a bracelet on American soil, online, and in Europe. There's about 20 of us that are in contention for it, but no one's done that. So I want to be the first one to be able to accomplish that dream. So hopefully after the series, things are going well enough, restrictions are open, that I can go over to the Czech Republic and compete for the next next level. Nice. I like it. Is, is that the kind of stuff uh, that motivates you as a tournament player? Titles, accolades, that sort of a thing? Or like cash games, is it money? So I don't play tournaments outside of the World Series. That's oh. the only time of the year I play it. I think I play five tournaments outside of the World Series of Poker, and it's uh, occasional Poker Masters, occasional one at Aria uh, for one of their high roller series if I think the field is particularly soft in it. Uh-huh. 95% of what I do is cash games. So uh-huh. the only reason I play during the summer is for the legacy, it's for the glory, it's for the bracelets. I, I don't play at Venetian. I don't play at Win. I don't play anywhere else during the series because there's no title and legacy that comes with it. Hmm. And I do 99% of my tournament play right now at this time of the year, specifically for a World Series. Um, and again, it goes back to I want to be an ambassador for this game. I want to build a name for myself. I want to build a legacy. And I think the only way to truly do it is through the jewelry, if you will, the bracelets, the rings, like the the titles that mean something. D- dare I suggest that you're succeeding at that quite well. Um, my last question for you, uh, before we get into the community questions, uh, you had alluded to it before, you know, there's no lab, there's no GTO uh, for mixed games. And, and obviously there's a ton of material out there for folks who want to improve at No Limit Hold'em, uh, even, you know, a good bunch about Pot Limit Omaha, um, but mixed games, like where do you turn, like, you know, beyond playing, getting the reps in, perhaps talking to friends, is there any, I don't know, that special sauce, we don't want to give away secrets, but someone who wants to improve at mixed games, again, beyond play, is there anything that you would recommend? The number one that I would recommend, and during the Galphon Challenge, we gave away his book, is Dylan Lynn's book. It has the basics, it doesn't have you know, necessarily how to be amazing at the game, but has uh, 15 to 20 games in it. It's Dylan Lynn's Mastering Mixed Game book. And it just says, this is kind of your opening ranges. This is kind of what you should do, how you should play the game, what side of the pot you should concentrate on in split pot games. And it's about the best resource there is right now to pick up and learn mixed games. And a shout out to Dylan. He won the triple Omaha eight or better tournament, defeated Hernan heads up, defeated Scotty three handed. Uh, one of the nicest guys in poker as well. Just phenomenal guy. Couldn't be happier for him. But he's put together one of the best mixed game content books out there. Uh, from a recreational pro player standpoint, uh, hashtag confirmed uh, on all of those accounts. It's a great book uh, published by DNB Poker. Uh, and we always love doing this. Uh, guys, this is episode number 59. Dylan was on number 49. There's a whole bunch of other podcast episodes to listen to as soon as you finish this one. So be sure to check it out. Um, okay, it's time to turn to the segment of the show where we turn to you guys, our Cards Chat community, to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. 
We had a we have a dedicated thread on the CardsJet forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. We have a couple of regulars who've sent in questions for us today. Uh, the first being Antonis three two one two three. Thank you very much, Antonis. Um, he asks. Uh, what is the reason, Nathan, uh, that you pref- that you do not prefer playing No Limit Hold'em, the game that most players like? So we touched on this a bit earlier as the intuitiveness mm-hmm. of mixed games versus Hold'em. If I think you can take a Hold'em player or someone that's never played the game before, and you can almost run it like a college course. Here's mm-hmm. your books. Okay, you're done with the course material. Let's move you into the solvers. Okay, you understand the solvers and how they function. Now do your homework and run those sims a thousand times and then get back to me and then run them a thousand more and get back to me. And you can teach someone the building blocks of being a successful no limit hold'em player. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of studying. It takes a lot of material and time. And not everyone can do it, but you can literally run it as a, a college course almost. And you can make someone a successful player. In the mixed games, you ask what's the best resource out there. I was able to give you one book, Robbie. One book. (laughs) There's nothing else out there. There's not videos. There's not books. There's nothing but just really watching. So for me, that's how I learn best is watching, is looking at pattern recognition. Uh, I played the No Limit Deuce to Seven single draw tournament. I've never played it before. I've played the game several times. I have a good intuitive grasp for it. But I end up seated at a table with Brian Rast, with Nick Schulman, and um, John Reisner. Easy game. Yeah, super easy. <laughs> some of the best, the best players in that game. And I kind of knowingly said, okay, I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to pay my tutelage, and I'm going to watch what they're doing. And I'm going okay. to learn. And that's how you have to kind of do mixed games is I'm going to pay my tutelage. I'm going to learn. And I think if you have the brain for it, if you have that instinct, then mixed games is old school poker. And that's why I love it. Love it. Great answer. Um, Acid burn FX. Thank you very much for sending in these two questions with which we will end the show today. Um, Nathan, it seems like being an outgoing, friendly person has thoroughly helped your career. There are so many players at the table that just sit silently with headphones on. How important is it to engage with other people at the table? Acid burn FX wants to know. We play poker for for three three things in my mind. Camaraderie, money, and competition. Uh, Those are their three primary things. And for me, I play obviously for the money. It's it's how I make my my life. That's my livelihood. But at the same time, why not enjoy yourself? Why not have the camaraderie? Why not talk with people? Why not make sure you're having a good time and they're having a good time? Um, You can sit there and you can be miserable and you can make just as much money and maybe even more money. But it's, it's kind of just about life balance of at one point, at what point, once you've made enough money, once you make a comfortable living, are you willing to sacrifice your happiness mm. for more money? And I think that just being happy in life means more than any amount of money. And that's what being talkative and being friendly does. And it also has its own benefits that uh, complement that. In the dealer's choice, $1,500 one, 
we had gentlemen that had never played any game but no one to hold them. Wow. We had to explain every single game to them, and we did. We said, this is the game. This is the best hand. If he had questions, we'd answer them. And he played for four or five hours, surprisingly. And after he busted, we had made sure he had such a good time. We had talked with him and chatted, and he was so happy he went and re-entered the tournament. Oh, wow. That's a success. Wow. I mean, we had fun. He had fun. And we actually profited from him having fun by him (laughs) re-entering the tournament. Uh, Most players are going to be quiet and say, oh, that sucks. You don't know the games. And he's going to be miserable, and he's never going to re-enter, and he's never going to enter another tournament. So they're costing the community, they're costing themselves, and they're miserable. Why not do both? Right. Wow. Why? That's, that's an amazing story. Literally proof positive uh, that it that it genuinely works, and uh, it takes you know a team effort uh, in that in that respect. Um, final question for you: uh, Acid Burn FX likes asking some grander questions, so we'll ask this one for you: Is it better to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? Both. so i've played the vast majority of my career in texas where i am a big fish in this pond uh i said i win 88 percent of the time in big o i'm crushing it it's amazing i'm making money out here but i'm not making a single connection Mm. i'm i'm beating you know john smith who works at the 7-eleven i i'm beating farmer joe that's tilling the crops and it's good money, but I'm not making any means outside of poker. Now, when I lived in Vegas, uh, I'm still making good money, but I'm establishing those connections. Now I know Ollie. Now I know Brandon Shackers. Now I know Norman Chad. Now I know people that have avenues beyond just playing. So I'm playing in a much smaller pool, and I'm a much smaller fish than I was before but I'm making means outside of poker. I'm making networks. I'm making connections. So it depends on what you want to get out of this. Do you want money? Do you want networks? What do you want? And I'll leave it at that. Very good. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, Nathan Gamble is certainly a fish, whether big or small. Uh, Thanks to everyone who sent in questions for Nathan Gamble and just a friendly reminder to our Cards Chat community that we'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you liked the show. Nathan, before we let you go, anything else you'd like to tell our audience? I just leave you with these words, Robbie, that poker can be an individualistic sport or it can be a community sport. And you're going to benefit more long term, both from a life enjoyment perspective, as well as from a monetary perspective. If you turn into a community support uh, and, and support those around you. Dare I suggest you'll benefit long-term from re-listening over and over again to this episode of the Cards Chat podcast as well. Uh, Thank you very much again, Nathan Gamble. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of Cards Chat. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at CardPlayerLife. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.